go over well today in today's service? No, I'm just kidding. She, um, I don't think she touched upon some of the things that we'll be touching upon this morning. And so, uh, but we will be using John 17, nevertheless. Uh, you know, before we go into it, though, I, I, I got to kind of just step out in faith here. And I really don't know how this is going to work out. So uh, in a crowd like this, it's hard. Um, because you have some people that will just demonize me and say, man, that guy is weird. And there's others who would be like, oh, thank God he's listening to the Spirit. You know, it's like this weird dichotomy, right? Um, but I couldn't help but feel in the second song, that Spirit Breakout song. I, I don't know the name of the song. Uh, spirit Breakout, I guess is the name of the song. Yeah, how am I doing? We're off to a great start. Um, I couldn't help but feel just the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit in that moment, especially when the, we were singing that King Jesus. I just felt something bubbling up inside my spirit, like a great hope, you know? Like, I, I don't know if you're like me, right? I mean, there's not a lot out in the world to be hopeful for and of, you know? But when it comes to Jesus, we have, we, I, I, I got up this morning and Honestly, I, I didn't want to come to church. That's weird. I'm the pastor, okay? That's, that's probably not the best thing to say on Sunday morning. But I had one of those moments. I was like, what am I doing? Why am I up this early? Why am I going and working at, you know, what's going on? And I, I, right in that moment when I started saying those things inside my head, inside my heart, I just felt a, 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 the spirit of gratefulness just well up inside of my heart and it wasn't really, you know, that I was being blown away by any kind of deep revelation, but I was just being reminded of the grace of God and the reason why we celebrate Jesus. Uh, the, the, you know, I, I realized this morning that I've been spared from the wrath of God. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's over the top for us this morning, but if you need a reason to come to church, listen, let that be your reason this morning. We've been spared by so much. The wrath of God. Think about the wrath of God. Wrap your mind around that for a moment. We've been spared. Not only have we been spared, but we've been made children. We've, we've been adopted into God's family. I, I, so I, I woke up this morning with an attitude. You know, I was like, I don't want to go. But as I was just in my car driving and I realized, wow, there, there's so much to be grateful for this morning. And man, if you need a reason to be grateful, if you need a reason to feel, to feel, excuse me, joy, just remind yourself of what Christ has purchased for you this morning. Thank you. It's okay. It's a hard crowd. It's a hard crowd. I'm telling you right now. Listen, can I just put this out there? It's okay to clap. It's okay to smile, okay, it is. It's okay to show uh, some kind of excitement, you know, like your pearly whites, your big smiles, like it's okay. I know sometimes in churches in New England it doesn't feel okay, but here at Hilltop it's okay to get excited about Jesus. I, I mean, can we just throw the awkwardness out the window? If you feel like you want to clap, if you feel like you want to shout, if you feel like you want to get up and run, no, don't do that. But if you, if you feel like you want to show any kind of excitement about your faith in Christ, listen, I want to encourage you to do it. So John 17, I want to start by quoting um, 
the executive president of a publishing company, Crossway. His name is Justin Taylor. And he says this about John 17. And I like this quote simply because I, with Bethany speaking last week, I had a good two weeks just to kind of lock into John 17, ponder it, think it over, pray it over. And this quote kind of stuck out to me as being significant as I was studying. He says this, John 17 is only about 650 words long. It takes only three minutes and 30 seconds to read out loud, unless you're me. Um, And this is where it really gets good. He says this, but it will take all eternity for us to fully understand it. Now, I happen to believe that Justin is on to something here. Given the fact that John 17, this priestly prayer of Christ, is so loaded, it's so jam-packed with such truth. I mean, you, it's so applicable to almost every aspect of our life. And I hope to draw out some of um, the places in which we can apply this prayer, this priestly prayer, excuse me, to our lives, but more importantly, to our community. And so I'm going to take a stab this morning to <laughs> unpack a very complicated <laughs> multi-layered, deep portion of scripture, so I ask for your grace. I'm probably going to miss things (laughs) that you've picked up on, as I'm sure you have given some thought and some attention to this prayer, but nevertheless, I feel as though the things that I'm going to pull out of this text are things that we need for our community. Is this okay? So here's Jesus saying in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they, they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them had been lost except for the son of destruction. I like that about Jesus. It's like, hey, that that one that got away wasn't my fault. Like, you know, like that had to happen so the scripture could be fulfilled. I'm, I'm sure that's not what Jesus meant to say, but it's funny, nevertheless. It sounds like something I would say. You know, like, like God, I, you know, I, I did really good at keeping everybody except for that one dude who was just unruly, who just could not submit and be humble, the son of destruction, actually. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I've kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Can we pray for two seconds? Lord, I pray in these next couple of moments that you would give me the grace to do more than just get through some points, to do more than just ascend to biblical truth intellectually, God. I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to cause my words to be weighty. Cause my words to 
find their place in the hearts and the minds of those who have gathered here. Lord, that we might be changed because of your anointing, the anointing that rests upon your word this morning. Help me, God. Help me. I surrender to you. Use me according to your will and your purposes this morning. Amen. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Now, this is interesting that Jesus says this because, you know, it's just a bit of an obvious point. He's still in the world. Like he's, he's not go, gone anywhere up to this moment, but he's obviously coming into contact with some kind of transition of which he talked about all throughout the Gospels, and most likely he's feeling the nearness of that time drawing close. The time will hit, will, where he, excuse me, will be reunited to the Father. And, you know, just an obvious observation, Jesus is a bit concerned here. I, I don't know if I've ever picked up on the concern that Jesus has for his people here in John 17, but I, I hope to convey, I hope to make clear that Jesus has a sincere concern for his disciples and their well-being as he is going on to the Father. Meaning, it's important to note that Jesus is just not making an observation here. Right? Jesus isn't just saying, hey, did you see the color of Bob's house? It's blue. I mean, that is so awkward. That's an awkward color blue. Or did you see what that young lady wore to church this morning? I can't believe she says she's a Christian. You know, Jesus isn't, he, he isn't just making an observation. And that needs to be felt. That needs to be noticed by us. Right? I mean, Jesus is doing more than making an observation here in John 17. He's, again, showing concern. Showing concern for who? The people in whom God has given him. Now, Another interesting thing to hone in and focus on is that not only is Jesus not just making an observation here, right? Um, Jesus is concerned not just for those who are present with him in this moment. His concern goes beyond just those who follow him or the 12 who are with him. His concern... It's for those he is with currently and those who will come into the faith. And and that needs to be felt. I feel like that needs to be understood by us. Because sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but but I I can very easily read a passage of scripture and forget to insert myself into the story. I, I can almost read John 17. Also, oh, Jesus, that's a, that's a cute little feeling and a prayer that you prayed up for your disciples. How precious that you love them so much that you were concerned about them. When all the while Jesus is talking to me here, he's praying with me in mind. He's praying. Think about that. Just think about that. Let that set into your thinking. Jesus is thinking about you and I here in John 17. That's unbelievable to me. Does that not floor you? It, I, I, my heart is like, whoa. Like, I mean, I don't know why it's taken so long for me to notice. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're saying, well, that's kind of foolish. You're a pastor. You should have noticed this. But, but this week, I really felt 
I really felt the truth of that point. So two things. Jesus is not only making an observation. He's showing legitimate, sincere concern for his disciples. And two, we need to read this passage this morning and, and, and see ourselves as the people in whom Jesus is praying for. In John 17, 20, we didn't read it, but we can put it up on the overhead here. And if you have your Bibles open, you can turn there. Just five verses from the verse that we left off in 15. But 17, 20 says this. I do not ask for these only, right? But also for those who will believe through their word. I mean, Jesus' concern, again, for his disciples has just as much to do with us as it does for those who are present at the time of Jesus' prayer. This concern continues. We can go on to the second half of verse 11, but we'll start from the beginning. Here it is. This is where I draw out the concern that Christ has. In verse 11, it says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Do you know what the word keep means? It means to, uh, I have it written down here, hold on. It means to uh, attend to carefully, to, to guard and to protect. Uh, metaphorically, it means to keep one in the state in which he is presently. So Jesus is saying, hey, Father, I- I've kept these people, <laughs> and, and they're in a good frame, you know, they're in a good place, and I'm, I'm coming to you, Father, and, and I need to know, God, that you're going to keep them in this present state, that I'm leaving them in. I don't think for one moment that Jesus has any concern <laughs> that, that God can't keep his disciples, his family. I'm sure that this isn't the reason entirely why Jesus is praying this prayer. But it does, it does help for us to connect to it in a very emotional way because we can resonate, you know, with, with, with the issue of, like, let's just call it God's keeping power, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but how many wrestle, you know, moment after moment, sometimes it feels like day after day with just, just being a Christian, just, just being kind. How many wrestle with that? Do your demons come out when you're in traffic? You know, you're like yelling at the person in front of you to get going, you know? Or are, are you short with friends who are kind of emotionally broken? You're just like, get it together when you should be more patient, We all know what it's like to have a fragile faith. And I think this is what Jesus is going after. You know, my main concern is, as a pastor, I've simply just breezed through the keep them part and moved right to the make them one. (laughs) You know? And the two are so connected, I think, in Jesus' prayer. And hopefully, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, and hopefully we're going to, bring out some meaning behind that a little bit. But, but as a pastor, you know, there's just that temptation to just, when you see the discord in the church and the relationships that are broken, just to immediately say, hey, listen, Jesus cares about our unity. Look at, look at John 17, verse 11 says so. 
And I don't know if that's exactly or entirely what Jesus meant by the second half of verse 11 when he said keep. So I would like for us to take a little bit more time to think about how the two are connected, meaning uh, the connection between being kept and being one. Again, I don't want to beat a dead horse. That's an old saying that my mother would use. I'm not quite sure what it means, but it's kind of stuck with me through the years, so I apologize if you're like, what does he mean by beat a dead horse? Hey, listen, it's in the family. I'm going with it. Don't exactly know what it means, so don't judge me. Um, but, but Jesus is concerned for the well-being of his disciples. We need to feel that this morning. We really do. Why? Because Jesus ultimately is concerned for me. He's concerned for you, right? He's not just concerned for those who are present, but those who are to come. And and the concern seems to be around God's, again, keeping power. Father, keep them. uh, Protect them. Guard them, Father. Keep them in the present state that I am leaving them in. That seems to be. Jesus is concerned, and, and, and partly the reason for the prayer. You know, as a dad, I can totally, I can, I can totally connect, I can relate and understand where Jesus is coming from right here in John 17. I, I have one son, okay? I know, we're, listen, end of story, we'll just stop there. I don't want to air my frustration, but um, we have one son, and the way I look at that is that's one chance to get it right. I've talked about this before. I don't have child number two that if I screw up with child number one, I I can like, okay, I messed up on child number one, so I'm going to try to jump on and implement some of the things I've learned from my mess ups with child number one. But I don't have that. I have one little dude that God has given me the responsibility to protect, to safeguard to raise up in the things of God. You know, I have one little guy. That's my responsibility. That's my code. But when my little guy is not under the care, like right by my side, you better bet. I I got somewhat of a concern. It's kind of a thing. I don't know. He'll be just 15 steps down the road with his friends on the block. And me and Bethany are out like the stoop and just looking out the window. Is he okay? Meanwhile, he's got a watch on that I can call him, track him, (laughs) you know, I mean, he's, he, like, he's under the watchful eye of his mom and dad all the time. So we get a little bit nervous. So I can totally understand and resonate with Jesus. I know what it's like to be a concerned parent. I'm wondering if the people he's around or the neighbors, if he is not loading up on gluten and sugar all day, you know. I'm wondering if, you know, he, I don't, it's, he's got this weird thing that he does when he goes over somebody's house he automatically goes to either a cell phone or an iPad, dials up YouTube, puts on Post Malone, the clean version. I didn't even know such exist. But um, he uses this phrase. Whatever, they're like, Abram, are your, is your parents okay with this? He's like, yeah, my dad lets me listen to it all the time. I'm like, I'm like what? What are you doing? What? I'm lit, lit, come here. But I'm wondering... Does anybody know that when Abram's gone over their house, that dad doesn't let him just listen and watch what he wants to watch? That there is a no, Abram, you can't do that. No, Abram, you can't eat that. I have those concerns. And honestly, guys, my prayer life doesn't necessarily look like Jesus's right here in John 17, but it's interesting the way prayer becomes of importance when Abram's not under my direct care. And so I 
I understand it. I, I get Jesus' concern as a dad. And for some of you, that may be over the top, but you try being a parent of one child. <laughs> it's not easy. But that's the way me and Bethany do things. And so, again, just to use that example to highlight Jesus' concern, he's simply just saying, Father, these are my children. These are the ones that I have worked, I have kept, and I've guarded up and to this point. Now, Father, I'm going with you. (laughs) And I need to know that these guys, my children, my disciples are safe. They're kept. They're protected. And I like that about Jesus. Look at verse 12. Again, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. So Jesus is saying, I, up until this point, kept them and has guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction. Again, I love that too. Um, But why is Jesus feeling so protective of his disciples? I think the short and most obvious answer to that question is that their faith is fragile. It's still very, very fragile. Now you would think that up until this point that wouldn't be the case, that wouldn't be the situation. I mean, Jesus is close to being betrayed He's close to the end of his ministry, let alone the end of his life. I mean, these guys have heard the messages of the Sermon on the Mount. They've heard that the meek shall inherit the earth. But yet here in Luke chapter 22, we see this awkward conversation emerge where they're arguing just moments before Jesus' betrayal. They're arguing about who is the most important, who is the greatest it's, it's, when you read it, it's almost like watching siblings fighting over who's mom and dad's favorite child. Abram will never have that problem. <laughs> but they're having an argument. And mind you, this is, this is close to the end of Jesus' ministry. They have heard parable after parable, teaching after teaching. But yet, here they are, Luke chapter 22, 24. They're having an argument, a dispute is what the Bible says about who's the greatest. How pathetic. Let's read. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them were to be regarded as the greatest. Oh, God. I think me and Will had a couple conversations like this before in our time. No, I'm just joking. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. (laughs) A dispute arose among them as to which of them was uh, to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. I'm trying to just dial myself, like control myself. I, I think my vision's bad, but I can barely see you, honey, up there. So I apologize. Okay, just a thumbs up? Okay. All right. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Let that set in for all my leaders in the house today. Let the leaders... Be as one who serves. For who is greater? (laughs) Are we reading our 
don't know, this just, this convicts me. It, it, it makes me want to serve more. It just makes me want to be the kind of personification of what Jesus is talking about here. For the leader must become the one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? It is not the one who reclines at the table. But I'm among you. Jesus is saying, I'm the greatest here, ultimately. I'm among you, and I've come to serve you. <laughs> we could go on another tangent. I could preach a whole other message on that, but we won't. So, so what I'm pointing out here is Jesus has a moment. He has a pastoral moment. This is exactly the way Jesus works to, to keep his disciples, right? That's what, that's what Jesus was saying. Father, up until this moment, I've kept them. And now I'm leaving. So this is a great illustration of how Jesus keeps the fragile faith of his disciples. It's the way in which Jesus keeps their fragile thinking, their egotistical thinking and, and, and puffed up behavior. Jesus uses this as a teaching moment to say, hey guys, listen. The greatest among you should become the youngest. The one who is the leader should be the one who serves. But it's not just their faith that is fragile. There's something else lurking in the text, and there's a real danger that exists. And sadly, that real danger exists and preys upon immature Christians like we see in Luke chapter 22. Jesus knows this. Let's read John 17, 14 through 16. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Listen, you know, contrary to popular charismatic theology, the world does not like you. And if it does, you should be asking yourself some serious questions. So there's a world that hates them, right? That's one of the dangers that is lurking. And then Jesus goes on in the text, just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So the way I see it, the world is a dangerous place for Christians to be in. And Jesus goes a little bit further to explain and pray about this evil one who is lurking. And we all know how malicious of an adversary Satan can be. And God is, Jesus right now in John 17 is praying, Father, keep them. Not only is their faith fragile, but the world hates them. Why? Because they hated me. And the evil one, the devil, is out there. And he is looking for whom he can destroy. And, and sure enough, we see this kind of manifest after Jesus' betrayal. You have all sorts of weird things happening amongst the disciples. All certain ways in which they're being snuffed out. And, and, and kind of, you know, like, you know, seeing their own fakeness and their own fragile faith where they thought they could stand and say, no, Jesus you won't go to the cross. I'll go in your place. But better yet, they couldn't even stand in front of a little girl and profess their faith in Christ. It's a fragile faith. There's a world that hates them. 
and there's an enemy who seeks to destroy them. You know, um, prior to coming into full-time ministry and having this be my job and kind of what I do with my wife, building a house of prayer with her, I, I worked in a um, construction company, essentially, to make a long story short, we oversaw um, construction on highways. And our job was mainly just to keep people who were working safe and keep the commuters safe. That was pretty much our job. And we had this, uh, these things that we worked with. They were called light towers. Not, no, I don't know if anybody's familiar. Probably not. But they're these big kind of towers that you can kind of crank up. They're run by generators. They're extremely heavy-weighted things. And essentially, they're just made to light up the area because uh, we're working at the, in, in the dark. You know, we would start anywhere from 7 at night and go right into like 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning. And so we used these light, arrow, these light uh, towers to kind of just light up the places in which we were working and just keep us safe and keep the commuters safe. And it was our job to kind of move them around from place to place. And funny story, I was working my first year, which is a hard year in this company because you're trying to prove yourself to your employer that you're worth, you know, being put in the union, getting the good pay and giving the great benefits. And so the first year is always the trickiest. And so I'm working the first year very hard to impress my employer. And I worked with this young man named Robbie, and he essentially was the person of whom we report, report excuse me, to my bosses and say, hey, listen, Daryl is worth being placed in the union. Or he would go to them and say, get rid of this guy. And so my first year is a lot of pressure. I was working with him. Unfortunately, Robbie ended up dying. It was also a dangerous job. He was hit by a FedEx truck and run over by a one-ton dump truck. But um, nevertheless, he was a good man to me uh, and got me into the union. But there was a funny story that me and Robbie got to share before he died. Um, It was probably my second week working, and every night we would have to um, return these light towers back to the yard, gas them up, and then get them off the truck and place them, chalk them, and make sure that they were safe. And unbeknownst to me, where we were offloading these light towers, mind you, these things are anywhere between 800 pounds to 1,000 pounds, um, where we're unloading these things are right near a hill. (laughs) And I don't know, because it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, it's totally dark, like, uh, I don't know. And I'm trying to impress Robbie, and we backed it up. He worked two jobs, and so I was like, hey, man, I got this. You just maybe catch a snooze until we go pick up the next things, and you just, you relax. I got this. He's like, you sure? You, you know, you want to do this alone? I'm like, yeah, man, I got you. Just put the good word in for your man. You know what I'm saying? He's like, no, you probably shouldn't do this. I'm like, listen, I got this. I got, just, I got this. So I convinced him, went to the back of the truck, unhooked the light tower, and the light tower started going down the hill. And here I am, I'm, I'm trying to compose myself. This is actually a funny story. Here I am thinking, I need to impress this employer. And, and, and I am letting this, you know, $5,000 light tower go down the hill. I'm holding on to this puppy. I am going to save this from happening. And I don't know. I mean, at the time, I'm a pretty heavy set guy now. I'm not going to lie. Um, but then I was slim, if you could imagine such a, a picture. Uh, but uh, I was slim. And so I weighed maybe 100 and I would say 30. Maybe that's too generous. I don't know. Don't hate me. Uh, but, but the light tower went down the hill. And I was holding on to it convinced that I was going to prevent this thing from reaching the bottom. 
That didn't happen. I went down with the light tower and all I could hear was Robbie at the top of the hill, let go of the machine! You idiot, let go, and it's not connecting. Like, I'm like, let go, I'm gonna save it. What are you talking about? <laughs> Lo and behold, the moral of the story is there are just some things you should not do alone. <laughs> you can clap, you can clap. And I learned that, I, that prop, the wiser thing would have been to let Robbie help me. And when I got back up to the top of the hill, he's like, dude, I told you you should let me help you. You know, interestingly enough, and I'm sure you caught this, verse 11 of chapter 17 is where the subject of unity first service, surfaces, excuse me, in verse 11 of the chapter. And this is where Jesus connects the idea of unity to protection. Is anybody tracking with me? I know John Cho is, because, you know, he's... My man, my man loves the gospel. My man loves Jesus. But is anybody hearing that? Mainly when we've read John 17, we've only emphasized unity, 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 keep them, keep them one, keep them one. And here Jesus does more than just say, keep them one. He connects the idea of unity to protection. Keep them in your name that you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Something that I find fascinating in the text is that people, other believers, you and I, are the means in which God uses to keep us, his people, in the name of his Father. Does that make sense? It means my relationships matter. Like, like the people in whom speak into my life, those who shepherd me, because every pastor needs a pastor. Don't think I'm asking for something that I don't give. You know, I've come to realize that my very salvation, my being kept, my being safeguarded, my being protected, has everything to do about personal responsibility, God, and other people. Is that, is that, is that, is that resonate with anybody? Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Are one. So the way in which God keeps us, the way in which he guards us, the way that he cares and protects us is intrinsically connected to our relationships or our unity or our oneness. Our relationships with one another are kind of the essential way that God it works out um, his keeping us. I guess that was really bad to say it that way, but essentially not to beat the dead horse, my connection, my oneness, my unity with you means more than just, Father, let them be one as we are one. You know, how else could we explain passages like Ecclesiastes 4? Let's go there. Ecclesiastes 4, and I promise I'm coming to an end. 
Picking up in verse nine, here it goes. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, if they fall, one will what? Lift, lift up his fellow. But woe, wow, that's a strong word. That's a strong word. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Look at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. Here's Jesus, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. <laughs> this is such a great, uh, the imagery. I, I mean, how many times have I felt this these words even resonate in my own hearts. Daryl, Daryl, <laughs> Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed. Jesus is showing that concern. He's like, hey, listen, Simon, you got a bullseye on your back. Satan wants you. <laughs> I love it in the charismatic church. We kind of live like Satan is non-existent. Like he's just like, yeah, well, you know, not today, devil. What's that mean? I mean, I get it. I do. But really, listen, this isn't no like small time bully in the schoolyard. <laughs> He's got real strength, real intention, and it ain't good. It ain't good. He's a strong adversary. I'm not trying to say he can't be defeated. Of course he can. But I have yet to see people who operate uh, in kind of a uh, lone soldier spirit just like going and by himself or herself and kind of, I've, I've barely seen the isolated conquer the devil. Bear, I've never seen it actually. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for your faith not to fail. And then listen, listen to what he says, focus. And when you have turned again, Peter, or Simon, what? What does he say? Go and bring revival to the nations. <laughs> Go and be a prophet to the nations. Like on Facebook, like what? I mean, like my social like network is not that big. No, he says, Simon, oh, when you regain strength, <laughs> turn and what? Strengthen your brothers. If that is not a clear. What an illustration. What an illustration. That Jesus doesn't just say, hey, like, Peter, when you get this together, like, go and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Even though Peter does that, he doesn't. No, he says, Peter, do what I have just done for you. I don't know if that's proper grammar, but I'm going to use it. But, but go and strengthen your brothers. I wonder if Satan's determination to have Peter has anything to do with Peter's role in building the very institution. Now, I use that word lightly. But I wonder if his, Satan's determination to have Peter has anything to do with Peter's role in building the very institution that God would use to strengthen the brethren, a.k.a. the church. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say in 2009. Everybody hates the church. 
the institution, church. What does that mean? I, I get what that means, okay? No, but, you know, but we, start, we have to stop railing against the very thing that God uses for our good. Oh, there's nothing worse than a team player complaining about the team and everything that's wrong, everything that's not right. Give me a break. You know why things are wrong and not right? Because you and I are wrong and we're not right and we need help. You put any large group of broken people together, what is the outcome of that gonna be? Oh, like, oh wow. You keep on waiting for it to change. Listen, it's not gonna change until Christ comes back and makes all things right. God used Peter greatly, we all know this, in building the foundation of the church, the very thing in which God would use to strengthen the brothers, the brethren, excuse me. In Acts chapter 2, 14 through 47, Peter was the first to proclaim the gospel on the day of Pentecost, right? This is where thousands of people were added to the church in just one day. Peter was also, think about this, he was also the first one to bring the gospel to the Gentile people. What a provocative thing to do in his day and age. Like, like, there's so many of his colleagues, not, not, not those who were directly near Peter, but there were so many people that are just like, like, this is for the Jews. This isn't for the Gentiles. But Peter has this, no, 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 no. This message is also for every tongue, every tribe, every nation. The very survival of our church, but even the early church, and we can see this in Acts, and we can see this through Acts, that God did something unique in their day where I don't even really know how to wrap my mind around it even today, where he, what, made them one. He made their heart and their mind, their thinking, they, they were like one. I don't even know what that looks like. Like, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around it, but it's interesting that that was one of the premier things that God did in Acts chapter 2. And it's funny, throughout the rest of the New Testament, it seems like the apostles worked to get it back. You know, all rumors of divisions were starting to emerge in the church. And, 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 and there's, this, there's this narrative throughout the New Testament where the disciples are trying to bring it back. Like, like, like God knows, friends, that we need one another. And speaking of one another, do you know how many times the New Testament uses those two words together, one another? Just take a guess. Don't say it out loud because that would be awkward, but I'll do it for you. <clears throat> Just in the two weeks that I've studied, I found over 61. Other commentaries and other people who have done the same research believe there's over 263 times in which the New Testament reference or uses the two words together, one another. Can I just reference 13 for you this morning? Just, just 13. Let's look at, you don't have to, you can flash it up or just listen, whatever you guys want to do, but Mark 9, 50, be at peace with one another. It's Jesus. John 6.43, don't grumble among one another. Romans 12.16 and Romans 15.5, be of the same mind with one another. Romans 15.7, accept one another. Galatians 5.26, 
Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Ephesians 4.2, gently, patiently tolerate one another. Oh, we just let this wash over us this morning. Oh, we need to hear this. Is anybody reading the Bibles these days? I happen to believe that if we were, we would see less discourse in the church, discord in the church. I happen to believe that if we were actually just thinking about these scriptures, that we wouldn't see fights and you know, people disagreeing and people being offense with, offended with one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. Colossians 3.13, bear with and forgive one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. James 4.11, don't complain against one another. It's also found in James 5.9. And lastly, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. But I have to tell you one of my all-time favorite one another verses, and I think this will bring it home for us this morning. I hope it does. It's my intent. But Hebrews chapter 10, if we could put it up, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 Here's the author of Hebrews saying, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the days drawing near. Don't neglect one another. What an unpopular thing to say. I mean, if you broke that down for me this morning, it would be like, come to church. It would be that simple. It really would. You can, you can laugh at that. You can snare at that. Oh, there he goes again. You know, the church. That's kind of why God made me a pastor. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of for the very thing in which God called me to lead. And I'm not conflicted. Like, I'm not, like, torn. Like, I get that Jesus is building his church. I get that it's not pretty all the time. But nevertheless, it's his church. It's his work. Therefore, I'm for his work. I'm not against it. I'm not jaded. (laughs) I'm not disgruntled. Oh, it's all the church's fault. Listen, you're not the first person in biblical history or history that has blamed the church for everything. Listen, not like like newsflash. Let me just help some of you prophetic people out there. Let me just help you because you need help. You really do. Not everything is the church's fault. Let me say that again. Hear me now. Not everything is the church's fault. It's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what, you can't do this Christian thing on your own. You can't. So don't neglect one another. But come together. Find time. Find ways to stir one another to what? Love and good words. Life seems to be vital. Life together seems to be vital to the author of Hebrews. It's crucial in sustaining our faith. It kind of, in a way, complements Jesus' prayer in John 17. Keep them. (laughs) Or keep them in the place, Father, where they will be stirred to love deeply and do good works in your name. Keep them, bind them together. 
Let them not neglect the assembling together, the coming together regularly. In short, Father, let them be one. And I don't know any other vehicle, any other means to promote unity, but also to be one with this spiritual family here other than what takes place here on Sunday and what goes on throughout the week when we're meeting each other's homes. It sounds a lot like the book of Acts. Don't be like one of those Christians that just say, oh, they only met in each other's homes. No, they didn't. Look a little bit closer. They had gatherings just like this Large gatherings, small gatherings, gatherings in homes, gatherings in churches. I mean, it was all about gathering. I can't help but to think that the writer of Hebrews is shouting to the church in 2009, saying, don't neglect each other. Come together. Stir one another when you come together. Stir one another to love deeply and to do good works. Relationship is hard. It really is. And I'm sure if you're like me, you fight constantly with the temptation to neglect things that are very valuable, you know, things that you need, things that, which the Bible says you need, like one another. I mean, listen, relationships are hard. They're not easy. You're misunderstood. I'm sure there's probably a good handful of you now that's misunderstanding me, and you're thinking, what's wrong with this guy? Why does he talk silently? Why does he didn't raise his voice? Why is he shouting? Why, what's wrong? Oh, my God, did he get checked out? But, you know, they're hard. Relationships are hard, but they're necessary. Listen to me. Relationships are necessary. And that's just not me speaking. That is Jesus, our Lord, speaking. Let them be one. Father, as we are one. You know, I think of the many relationships that I probably should have worked harder to preserve. I, I think of one that I actually succeeded in, and, is that, and that is my marriage with my wife. Many of you know, and many, some of you don't know, but we dated, listen to this, for like 12 years. That is weird. Okay, um, listen, I don't have like any box to put that in. I can't explain that any better than the next person. But it happened, it's real. We were up again, off again, on again. You know, but I am so glad that I personally fought for that relationship. And you say, well, yeah, that's good. It makes sense. She's your wife. No, 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 no. You don't understand. 12 years. Like, there were times I wanted to abort mission. I wanted out. But I am so grateful that God kept me in the fight for that one. And there's many others. Listen, we need to fight for one another, not fight against one another. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion. I have nothing else to say, nothing else to do. I can't pull a rabbit out of my hat. I can't do cartwheels. You know, there's nothing else I can do but just submit to you the word of God and hope that it sticks. Hope that something resonates, gets inside of your heart, 
in your mind and changes you. It would, it would, the greatest disservice to any pastor is a people who only hear and never do anything with what they hear. I'd rather not pastor. I'm not mad. I'm happy. Very happy. Sometimes too happy. But I'm serious about this. I'm serious. I'm not here trying to play church and push a program. I'm here to preach God's word and to experience the joy and pleasure of serving him in the context of family. And so there's really nothing that I see more appropriate to do at this moment but than to take communion again. So the worship team comes up. I'd like to invite my good friend Chris and his wife, Mary, to, I'm sorry, not his wife yet, sorry. I'm doing premarital counsel. I'm so sorry. I'm pushing the dial. I'm pushing the dial. Come on up, friends. Good Lord. I mean, you guys just look like the perfect couple. And they're going to lead us in communion, so I'm going to pass the baton. And um, if you need uh, the elements, if you need that little package that we were passing out in the beginning of service, just raise your hand. Our ushers will get you one. A couple hands raised here. And I defer. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Before I let Mary read the text, I just wanted to say one thing. I'm so grateful to be here and, like, and be a part of this community. Um, Saturday mornings, I have the opportunity to teach Bible to teenagers who live in this community that I work in. Um, very urban teenagers. And yesterday, we were talking about community a lot and reconciliation and what does it mean to be a community. And we got to the point where we were talking about how God in and of himself is a being who is communal. Right? There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we're called to be in community. So I just wanted to say I'm so grateful. And I appreciate you, Pastor Darrell, for preaching that. Like, it's, it resonates with me and it resonates with how we're called to be as believers. So one thing I wanted to say, though, about communion was um, I took a couple notes because this exact moment when I left my phone. It's okay. Um, it's all right. I'll remember. One thing I wanted to say was this, was that communion is this corporate thing we do together. I remember. It's this corporate thing we do together and it's so beautiful. But communion is also very intimate and personal, right? We get to remember Jesus together as a body, but then we also get to examine our own heart on our own in that same exact moment. And it's such a beautiful thing that Jesus calls us to be together and to do this together, but then he also calls us to examine our own heart and how he has impacted our lives. And for those of you who might not have had that that impact with Jesus yet, not only are you invited to the table, you are wanted and desired to be there. You're wanted. You're wanted. So we're just so grateful to be up here and be able to share communion and really to just hear what Jesus said. So when you hear the words of Jesus, yo, let them be personal. Let it be something that stirs in the inside of you, right? And then if you see somebody or there's people here, connect, be communal. As God calls us to be communal, we were made in his image. So Mary, you can read that. Um, From Luke 22, starting in verse 19, it says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, Lord, um, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to come together. I want to thank you for the blessing of um, coming as one, um, 
in your presence, under your name, to worship you and glorify you um, every week and sometimes multiple times a week. That God, so many people don't have the opportunity to do that. Um, they have to hide their faith um, and they have to do everything in secret, but we have the blessing and the privilege of uh, being open and free with our worship and our communion with you and with one another. So God, thank you. Um, I just pray for those who don't know you, God. I pray that they, um, their eyes are opened and their hearts are drawn towards you and they are overwhelmed by your love and your grace um, that you have for them. So God, thank you. And uh, I bless each and every person's week. And uh, I just thank you. Amen. So guys, let's take communion together, yeah?